you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 as we today return to a message series that we started last fall from this New Testament book and which will carry us through the end of the church year in August. And I just need to say to you at the outset, uh, today we come to the section of the book that I have dreaded the most. I'll never forget my dad. I I I talked to my dad uh, when we were moving to Tennessee years ago, and Julie and I had been married a year and two months. And we were looking at houses to buy, and Dad said, uh, I said to Dad, I said, well, Julie and I are thinking about uh, maybe, maybe building a house. And he said to me, he said, you hadn't been married long enough to build a house. Uh, your marriage will not survive the building of that house. And uh, I thought, well, what does that guy uh, know? And it uh, turns out uh, quite a bit, um, you know, uh, building, building a house is hard. And, and the reason I've not, I think, probably been to uh, the book of Romans as a preaching subject uh, up to this point is that I hadn't been your pastor long enough to walk you through it. Um, we're going to deal with a section of Scripture that is certainly fostering more debate than any other section of the book of Romans. And I believe that it may be the, book, the, the section of the New Testament about which there is more com, um, controversy than, than any other section of, of the Bible, and, and I'm even including Revelation in that. There's, there's a lot of debate about Romans 9 through 11. And over the next several weeks, we're going to deal with some difficult things. We're going to deal with the debate concerning God's sovereign choice and man's free will when it comes to receiving Christ and also rejecting Christ. And we're going to deal with God's current relationship to national Israel, which is not only a theological hot potato. In our world, that's a political hot potato, so yay me. Uh, The opportunity for folks to get their nose been out of joint over the next several weeks over something they hear in a sermon will have been higher than it has been in many years of being your pastor. But here's what I can promise you. While preaching, while the the preaching team is is on the same page with what we believe Romans 9 through 11 is teaching, maybe not the same paragraph but on the same page with what we believe Romans 9 through 11 is teaching, none of us are arrogant enough to believe that we've got it so figured out that these next messages will end all debate, debate which has raged for 2,000 years in Christian history. We know that's not going to happen. What I can promise you is that we will present as faithfully as we can what we believe This section of the book is teaching, and also we will do it with humility, understanding that there are men and women of God who have forgotten more about the Bible than we will ever know who have reached some different conclusions about what Romans 9 through 11 is teaching. We also promise not to lose sight of what these three chapters really are. They are Paul pouring out his heart as he tries to shepherd the concerns that his readers might have. He wrote them as a pastor. And we will share what these chapters have to say to us as 
pastors. So let's do a brief review, especially since this entire section of the book about which we are uh, to spend time studying is dependent on knowing that a particular question would have been gnawing at Paul's readers up to this point in Romans. Paul started his teaching in the book of Romans by highlighting the notion that everyone who has ever drawn a breath on planet earth is a sinner and as such is the object of the wrath of God. But his purpose in sharing that is to not defeat people or to lead them to hopelessness or fear. His purpose in highlighting this awful truth is to demonstrate that if mankind were to ever find their way out of this awful predicament before God, it would require God in his mercy and grace to do something about it. The solution was for people everywhere to place their faith in Jesus who having fulfilled perfectly the Old Testament rules and regulations of the Jewish religion and never having sinned, bore the penalty of our sin, bore all of the wrath of God against, against us for our sin in his body and as such so completely paid the penalty of sin, that we are now free to live by God's power in a way that pleases him, having been reconciled to him through the blood of his son Jesus, never having to worry again about a single ounce of God's wrath being visited against us. But obviously, obviously, those who reject God's provision of Jesus remain the objects of God's wrath. Now, that raises some uncomfortable questions. I mean, if you have a heart and an ounce of compassion, that should raise some questions about the nature of God. Understanding that the end game of God's wrath is eternity in hell, people should be naturally asking questions about God's general fairness or, or His compassion but for a specific group of people, God's wrath against those who reject his provision of Christ and remain in their sin raises another question, a question concerning the faithfulness of God, leaving them to ask, is God really faithful? That specific group who would have been led to question God's faithfulness were those who had come to the Christian faith from the Jewish religion. For their entire lives, from the time they were children, their first memories had been learning that the Jewish people were God's chosen, that they were the most favored in God's eyes among all of the people of the world. For their entire lives, they had been taught that the rest of the world was the object of God's wrath. But they were not. They had the promises of God in the Old Testament. This formed the backbone of their belief that they were, above all people, God's chosen people. So to hear that their Jewish kindred, who had not yet found faith in Christ, were the objects of God's wrath apart from Jesus was worldview-shattering for them, leading them at best to wonder if God had somehow changed the rules and at worst to wonder 
If God could be trusted at all, I mean, if he could go back on his promises, this was her thinking, if he could go back on his promise to Abraham and switch the rules and say, oh, no, it's not, it's not being a descendant of Abraham anymore. Now it's being a follower of Jesus. If he could change the rules of eternal life like that, then how can I trust him at all? Is God faithful? This would have been in their mind. Now, here's my guess. My guess is, is that a good many of us here in Johnson County have given no thought to that at all. It doesn't concern us. I mean, now that I bring it up, I mean, what does God do with his promises to the Jewish people through Abraham in light of Jesus and in light of anyone who doesn't avail themselves of the provision of God in Jesus Christ to be saved, are therefore objects of the wrath of God. I mean, that's a cute little theological puzzle maybe for you to work out if you're a nerd like me, but frankly, you're saying that doesn't make a difference in how I'm going to go to work tomorrow or how I'm going to pray to Jesus right now. And so you don't wonder at all about whether or not God's faithful. Oh, yes, you do. Everybody, unless your halo is screwed on a lot tighter than mine, has times in your life where you question the faithfulness of God. Sometimes it's because of an issue arising in your life about which you have poured your heart out to God in prayer, and it seems that God has just not paid you any mind whatsoever. And you've read all of this stuff in Scripture about, about uh, how your prayers are ushered into the presence of God by the Holy Spirit and made perfect in His ears, and you think, okay, well, so what gives? I mean, I know our family prayed for four years for our son and for our daughter-in-law to be able to have children, and we ended up being whipsawed between infertility on one side and, 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 and multiple miscarriages on the other. And during that season of our lives, it was very easy for us, even in the Lynch family, to wonder whether God's faithful. So those happen, those instances like that happen to all of us. But in my role as pastor, I found that the questions we have about God's faithfulness the most, the reason that people say, Pastor, can I talk to you, or Elder, can I talk to you, are about God's faithfulness to us in our own salvation. How can I know that God won't take it back? How, how can I know when I look in the mirror and see a person who has not progressed in faith like I, I think I should have progressed in faith to this point, how can I look in the mirror and know that that person looking back at me has chronic issues with particular sins that they wrestle with over and over again? How can I know that God won't look at all of that and say to me, nah, oopsies, I'm going to take that back? How can I know he won't do that? So you may not care at all how to solve the theological puzzle of what to do with the promises to Abraham in light of the provision of Jesus Christ. You may not care about that at all, but I promise you, you do care about God's promises to save you and how certain they are. And I promise there have been times that all of us have wondered, is God faithful to still save me? So if you'll hang on to that 
and let us wander through and wade through some admittedly challenging material this morning, we will come back to that question. How can I know that God is faithful to save me? But for right now, let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul here is setting the emotional tone for the argument that he is about to make, but I think it's worth spending a little bit of time kind of pondering the passion that God had or that Paul had for his people group, the people who shared his DNA. The vast majority of the Jewish people from whom Paul had come had rejected Jesus as Messiah. That meant that the systems that had nurtured Paul and educated Paul and the leaders who had mentored Paul were outside of faith in Christ. That meant that the throngs of people who gathered to worship God in the temple all the time were outside of faith in Christ. That meant that the members of his own family, perhaps all of the members of his own family, were outside of faith in Christ and therefore the objects of God's wrath. So this is not a theological puzzle that Paul is trying to solve. He is feeling the weight of the lostness of his people, of his mentors, of his family. And so when he says here, I'd give up my own salvation for theirs, he means it. In fact, he underscores it. He says, I'm doing this in Christ with the Holy Spirit as my witness, that if it were possible for me to give up my salvation for the people I love, I would. But more than that, the Jewish people that he was willing to do that for were not just his friends, they were also his sworn enemies at this point. The persecution that he faced, the imprisonment that he experienced, most frequently happened at the hands of the Jewish leadership. And Paul did not say, I'd give up, I'd give up my, my own salvation for the kindred in the flesh, my brothers and sisters who are nice to me. He's just saying, I, I'd give it up for all of them. I mean, here, here's something to think about. Our neighborhood in the Christian metropolis is known for praying God save America prayers all the time. But I wonder, do we mean it like Paul meant it when he said, I'd give up my salvation if you would save everyone in my people group? Do we mean, really mean we want God to save everyone? I mean, would we be willing to swap out our salvation for the salvation of those holding to a political ideology that we oppose or for the salvation of a political leader who's vocally hostile to Christianity? Something to think about. Paul was willing to do that. And all of this frames the passion behind what Paul is about to say, which rhetorically was important because many had taken Paul's message of Jesus, faith in him alone, and his God-given message to take that uh, gospel to the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, as an indication that he had no concern whatsoever anymore for his 
people group. To the contrary, he's saying, I'd give up my salvation for them. Paul maintained a deep, passionate concern for his people. And he understands the special place they have held in God's eyes. He makes that clear in verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's recounting the spiritual heritage of the Jewish people. First, he calls them Israelites, as he will do through the rest of this passage. The term Jew has ethnic implications, national implications, political implications, but Israelite reflected the special religious significance of the Jewish people in the eyes of God because Israelite is derived from God changing the name of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, to Israel, who was the father of the sons whose names comprise the names of the tribes of Israel. To say Israel rather than Jew was to understand there is a special place in God's eyes for these people. They have a special status. And an undercurrent of uh, things going on in the church to which Paul was writing was a real and growing tension between Christians from the Gentile uh, persuasion and Christians from the Jewish persuasion. From the Gentile side of the equation, their animosity towards those who were Christians from the Jewish persuasion can only be described as anti-Semitism. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem had been responsible for Christ's crucifixion, and the vast majority of Jews still rejected Jesus as Messiah. Why would we want anything to do with them, even if a handful of them have crept in claiming that Jesus is the Messiah that they follow. So there was this growing marginalization of Jewish Christians in the church to which Paul was writing in particular and the entire church worldwide in general. So Paul's going on record here as saying that anyone who would pervert the gospel he was preaching into permission to harbor racist attitudes towards the Jewish people didn't get that idea from him or his message. The same is true with racist attitudes towards any people group. The gospel, hear me clearly, is incompatible with racism in general. But anti-Semitism specifically is Paul's point here. And Paul is making that abundantly clear. But again, all of this is just table setting for what Paul is wanting to say. Let's get to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He's saying, I know that the vast majority of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus the Messiah. But it's not as though God's promises to them have failed. He's saying that God had not suddenly decided to 
Make the Gentiles the object of his affection. Make them the chosen people and excluding now the Jewish people. The way Paul phrases this is that he's making it clear it's not the case that God has no longer been faithful to his people. He is saying that God's giving of these blessings hadn't negated the special status, hear me clearly, this is important, of being an Israelite. An Israelite. You're saying, I don't get it. Remember, he's using Israelite different than he's using the term Jew. Jew has ethnic implications. Israelite has to do with the special status they had before God. And he's saying that, that God had not abandoned his promises to being his people to Israelites. And he's about to explain how. Look at verse, the last part of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Let me just try to put what he's saying here as simply as possible. The last part of verse 6 is saying simply having Jewish DNA did not automatically convey special status before God, make you an Israelite. And the first part of verse 7 says the same thing differently. Not every descendant of Abraham is automatically conveyed special status before God. So the point he is making is this. The reason that you think that perhaps God has not been faithful to his promises to Israel is because you have misunderstood what it means to be an Israelite. Being an Israelite, remember again, he's using that term to convey the, the special status that they have before God. He's saying being an Israelite is not a matter of race. It's a matter of something else. What is that something else? It's a promise. Look at the rest of verse 7. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. At this point, I don't blame you if you think, I'm out. I have no idea what any of that meant. And I'm, my brain hurts. And the preacher is a nerd. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. Hang with me here. Hang with me. Understanding those two verses require remembering two things. First, that the confirmation of God's promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation was given to Abraham and his wife when their struggle of infertility had become permanent childlessness due to their age. When God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, the days for having children were over. They were too old. It was past them. That's the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember is this very simply. Isaac, the son from Abraham and Sarah, was not Abraham's first child. Abraham had trusted that God would provide him and Sarah with a child. However, years of continued childlessness saw them succumb to temptation and take matters into their own hands in a way that just sounds absolutely soap opera-ish to us. And it's actually portrayed on the pages of Scripture as being soap opera-ish, but it was a little more socially acceptable at the time. Hagar says to Abraham, take my slave Hagar 
and conceive through her, and then that child will be the fulfillment of God's promises to us. We will help God along and and speed up the process here by having a child in this way. But God says to them when this child is born, Ishmael is his name, God says to them, that's not what I promised. I said, the nation I would create from you who would receive the spiritual blessings that Paul had outlined in verses 4 and 5 of Romans 9 would be miraculous, that this child would come to you by God's power and God's power alone, and that child was Isaac. So, following Paul's logic, he's saying from the very beginning, being Abraham's child biologically didn't automatically convey a privileged position before God. This is what the Jews had misunderstood. Hey, I'm a Jew. We go to temple. We observe all these rules. I have a special status now before God. And Paul is saying, if that's what you think, you have mistaken badly what God has always said. Being biologically related to Abraham didn't automatically convey a privileged status before God. Isaac had that privilege. Ishmael didn't, to which his audience would respond, okay, but I know more of the story. Ishmael was not legitimate. He wasn't the biological child of Abraham and Sarah, so of course God would make that kind of distinction. Paul goes, point taken, let me also remind you of some children down the line. Let me remind you of Abraham and Sarah's grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, this is Isaac's wife, by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, at which point we flinch and we go, what? I mean, that's not a life verse, I hope, for anybody. <laughs> and it's important to understand, it's not meant to be taken literally in the sense that God hated Esau, but it's instead a reflection of how the Old Testament language phrased things hyperbolically to make a strong point. The point being that God had chosen Jacob to be the one through whom the spiritual blessings of Abraham would pass. Jacob did nothing to deserve that. It was a choice that was made before Abraham was born and before Esau was born. God said the blessings will come in and through Jacob, Esau will not experience that. Paul is using this to prove his point once again. God's promises to Israel were never about DNA. Otherwise, Esau would be a part of the chosen as well, but he was not. They were based on his choice to convey this blessing on the descendants of Abraham that he himself chose. So God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He had not gone back on it by creating, and this is what they never understood, the Jewish people. They never understood he was creating a spiritual people from Abraham to be his chosen people, of which the Gentiles were now a part because they had placed their faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. God had kept his promise to the chosen. Paul's readers had just misunderstood what it meant to be chosen. 
to put it as one author, uh, has said on this text, the choice that God made was based on grace and not race. And so that's what happened. That's how Paul could say God has remained faithful to Israel, his chosen people, because it's never been about what they could accomplish or who they are. It's always been about his choice. It's always been about his mercy being shown to people who put their faith in him. So answer the question right now silently in your minds. Who are God's chosen people? And if your answer is Israel, I've got to go back and do 30 minutes of this stuff again. (laughs) Because what Paul is saying here is that God's chosen are not people who have Jewish DNA. God's chosen are people who have been covered by Jewish blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Israel of God, and that's the exact phrase that he has used already in the book of Romans, the Israel of God, the church, have the status of God's chosen people, which brings us back to the concerns that we sometimes have about God's faithfulness to us, particularly as it relates to our salvation. How can I know that God will be faithful to his promise to save me by the work of Jesus Christ? There are two big ideas that we need to draw from this quickly, and then we will close. First big idea to anchor you to the idea of God's faithfulness is this. God keeps his promises. He doesn't shift them. He doesn't shade them. He doesn't welch on them or go back on them in any way. God keeps his promises. The promise that he made to Abraham to give him a son through no merit of his own, through no effort of his own, through no ability of his own, and from that son to come a great nation that had no particular merit on their own. They were not of great size or great stature, but a nation would come from them through whom the entire world would be blessed, through whom a Jewish man would come as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. God kept that promise. He is still keeping that promise. And so as I think about the story of salvation in the particulars of me, I understand that as one who is a part of the chosen people of God, that God has shown mercy by bringing me to Jesus, I understand that God will keep that promise to me. He's got millennia of history of demonstrating that he's going to keep that promise. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing to understand is that having been promised salvation by God as we've surrendered ourselves to Jesus, knowing God will never go back on that, we need to lay into the idea that we're kept by God's promises. And here's what I mean by that. Jacob, the one who was named Israel, technical term here, complete jackwagon. I mean, he really was. If you go back and look at his story, what rolls downstream in Jacob's life, he lives up to his name, deceiver. That's what Jacob means. God says, you know what? That is who you are. I'm making you something different now. You're going to be Israel. And you think, okay, well, everything gets better. No, that old deceiver continually comes out and out and out again. I mean, he's a mess. He's a mess. And then, honestly, His children, his family, it could be a reality show. 
I mean, it was a nightmare. They're a nightmare of a family. And yet God keeps his promise because it, it wasn't about them. It was about his promise. There are people that we want to brag on. Moses, for instance. Moses was a guy who certainly deserved God's salvation. You remember that Moses became so filled with pride at one point that God said, I can't, I can't let you lead the people into the promised land. You're, you're trying to usurp my place as their ultimate leader. So, you know, he, he kind of had an issue. You say, well, David. Yeah, David, man after God's own heart, adulterer and murderer. And yet God continues to show his favor on the people of Israel and keep his promises in spite of the struggles that the individuals had. He kept them, his people. He kept them from finally abandoning him. And so when I look at my life, I don't ever need to think of sin lightly. I never need to think of the sin that I continue to struggle with in my life as of no consequence because, hey, God promised me salvation and I'm off the hook. Have him in a binding contract. He can't get out of it. I should never think of my sin in that way, ever think of my sin in that way. If I think of sin that lightly, then I don't think it's theologically possible for you to have actually repented of your sin and surrendered yourself to Jesus. But when you mess up, when you are, theological term, a jack wagon, and are, are tempted to think, well, if I were God, I'd take it back. Understand that his promise to you is absolute through Jesus. And that he will continue to keep you and make you and take you on a journey to a point where your final completion of holiness will be completed by the power of Jesus and not your own effort. God keeps his promises. I continue to be kept by the promises of God. I know that in spite of me, I will be in heaven with him forever. I know that in spite of me, that in this life, with all of my problems, I will be able to give glory to God because of the mercy shown me in Jesus Christ. I know all of that absolutely because God has proven time and time again from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation that he keeps his promises and he keeps his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.